Hey, everybody. Welcome to the EquipCast. My name is Jim Jansen, and I am your host. And I sat down with Father Jim Kiter today to talk about pastoral planning. Now, if you don't know what pastoral planning is, that is the process where the priests and facilities and all the resources we have as a church get planned out for the sake of our mission. And more and more, that often means a reduction in mass times and changes to facilities and routines that many of us hold precious. That can be a hard process. But Father Jim Kiter talks about the experience that he has had in pastoral planning as really a beautiful and hopeful reality. Um, he talks about how to make trust in the Holy Spirit just a really practical way forward through uh, the challenges of the doubt and the fear and the shame that often creeps in as we try and address the issues we need to in pastoral planning. He talks about the importance of keeping the main thing the main thing and making disciples and how, well, it's a little counterintuitive, but all of the other things that need to happen that the Lord has provided for him as a pastor, individuals with the gifting and professional expertise to help assist him in managing that. He talks about how you make disciples. It's really a wonderful conversation. Talks about really the experience of joy. Their parishes, they cut their mass times in half, uh, from eight masses down to four masses. And on the other side, the experience has been fantastic. It really has been a gift, and there's been a rediscovery of joy within his congregation. If you have experienced or are now starting to experience pastoral planning, you're going to want to listen to our conversation today. Take a listen. Welcome to the EquipCast for the Archdiocese of Omaha, designed to help leaders to transform their cultures, to embody the pastoral vision, to be one church, encountering Jesus, equipping disciples, and living mercy. Father Jim Kiter, welcome to the EquipCast. How you doing? I am doing well. All right. So we, I, actually, I don't know. We've been friends for a long time and I have had several friends in, in common, Dr. John Dickinson, but also now kind of like the Lord brought my ancestors up in Cedar County, where you are from and now serving as a pastor. We've got a lot of things that kind of connect us. If you would, give, give everybody a little intro, like, who are you? Tell us a little bit about your, your faith journey. Give yourself a little intro for those listening. I'm a priest of the Archdiocese of Omaha. I grew up on a farm west of Hardington, Nebraska, about three miles. But I was actually born in Omaha because I am adopted. Mm -hmm. So my first home was the St. James Orphanage, which happens to be the old Sheehan, Archbishop Sheehan campus. Yeah where your offices used to be in Omaha. Yeah, my office used to be right underneath the nursery where you were adopted out of. Correct. So the irony is that where the nursery was, where I used to be at the St. James Orphanage just a few years ago, and when I began as a priest, was the stewardship and development office. And so I joked that I began life crying in the nursery, and now I'm back as a priest crying, we need money. <laughs> oh, that's that's great. God always has a sense of humor. Yeah, I love it. So you're the pastor of several parishes about to uh, take on a few more. Give us a, just a little glimpse into the little slice of heaven those of us from Nebraska call Cedar County. Yeah. So 
my very first assignment was actually in Northeast Nebraska when I was ordained in 2001. My first assignment was at Sacred Heart Parish in Norfolk. I was there from 2001 to 2004, and then I served the next several years in Omaha, Assumption, Assumption Guadalupe, and uh, St. Peter Claver Cristo Rey. But it was in 2014 that Archbishop Lucas asked me to become pastor of three parishes, St. John the Baptist in Fordyce, St. Boniface in Menominee, which is where the roots of your family. Yep, that's where all the Jansons are buried in the cemetery there. Yeah. And St. Joseph's in Constance. So from 2014 to 2018, I was pastor of those three parishes. It was an awesome four years. But in 2018, maybe at the end of 17, beginning of 18, it was at a parish council meeting with St. Boniface, because they each had their own council as a, as a parish, each individual parishes. And they go, Father, how could we make your life easier? Mm. And I'm like, well, maybe we could start looking at becoming one parish with three sites. And in 2018, we became All Saints Parish with church sites in Menominee, Fordyce, and Constance. And then a year later in 2019, I was asked to become pastor of Holy Family Parish, which is Bow Valley, St. Helena, and Why Not? Right. That's one parish, but they already had three sites, correct? They had done it a little over 20 years earlier before All Saints where they became one parish canonically, one corporate entity, mm -hmm. which means one finance committee, one set of books, one set of sacramental books for the whole. And so I was now pastor of All Saints with the three church sites and now Holy Family with three church sites. And then was also asked to become pastor of St. Rose of Lima in Crofton, which is one parish, one church site. Mm -hmm. 2019, the last four years, I have been pastor of three parishes, but with seven church sites. And that will change this coming July 1st as our current family of parishes will grow. And there will be five more parishes to our west, uh, St. Andrews in Bloomfield, St. Wenceslas in Verdigree, St. William in Nibrera. St. Ledger in Creighton, and St. Ignatius in Brunswick will become part of our Catholic family of parishes. So this July, I will transition to become pastor of eight canonical parishes, but 12 sites. Okay. So I'm just going to state the obvious. W wow, that's a lot. We were, as we were just kind of getting set up, we just had a conversation of like, Father, where, where are you finding hope and peace and just a, a sense of kind of leading and direction through all of this. Cause that's, that's overwhelming. I mean, that's just, that's a lot. And yeah, I'd love for you to share like what's or who has been leading and guiding you through this, this journey of faith, this pastoral planning process. Yeah. Well, I have to trust that the Holy spirit is at work in all of this. I have to trust that the Holy spirit is just, at work in my life individually, mm. because we know that from the beginning of sin, the fall, <laughs> uh, chapter three of Genesis, we know that one of the great tools that the devil uses against us is doubt. Mm -hmm. And as soon as he asked 
or mentioned to Eve and, and to Adam, well, surely you will not die. Mm-hmm. You know, he inserts out into the whole equation of, of life here and now in the fall. And so the only way to combat doubt is we have to place our trust in what we know is absolutely true. Mm-hmm. We know God the Father is our creator. We know that he sent his son Jesus to save us. And we know that they sent the Holy Spirit to be our advocate. We're going to be celebrating that here in just a couple of weeks with the Pentecost. And so I have to place my trust that the Holy Spirit is at work in all of this. Otherwise, I know that one could get consumed by a plethora of doubts. Yeah. How can that work? That's not even reasonable. Yeah. All the things that, you know, we naturally come up with. Yeah. Father, I have to ask, how do you do that practically? And I mean, how have you done that practically in the context of pastoral planning when you're like, it's mass schedules and budgets and, you know, facility questions and trying to bring communities together that maybe haven't ever worked together before, maybe don't have, or worse yet, I don't think that's as much in your circumstance, where they have worked together and it hasn't gone well. How do you, in the practical messiness of trying to bring you know, families and parishes together, how do you do that? How do you trust in that uh, concretely? Like, how do you trust in those circumstances? Think about Jesus. He called those first apostles, and they were, they were a ragtag group. Mm-hmm. Fishermen, tax collectors. I mean, no formal education. Mm-hmm. I love the word that was really explained well in uh, the book called by Kevin Cotter. He spent a time on just that one word, hecklockery, mm. which is like when a Jewish young man heard that, it was like winning the lottery. Mm. because they knew they were being invited to follow the rabbi. Yeah, that was the word of invitation that a rabbi would use. So you think about those first apostles, Peter, James, you know, John, Andrew. They hear that one word. They don't even know Jesus. They hear this one word and leave everything. Yeah. Okay, in order to do that, God had to be at work, huh? There had to have been something greater than in any of those four at the very beginning, those first four called so trusting that I absolutely, you know, fall back on that of the Holy Spirit at work. Now, you just mentioned lots of moving parts that are absolute realities of the pastoral planning. Yeah. Whether it's the administrative side and facilities to budgets and finance. I mean, like super practically, I remember one of the trips I took up, I think it was in 2018, we were hanging out. You know, I had come up because I really wanted some sausage from the Fordyce meat locker, but also wanted (laughs) wanted to hang out with you. And we were talking and you had just at that time, I think, taken on responsibility and just the number of keys, the number of checkbooks and the number of payroll dates. I was like, holy cow, just very practical realities. I was impressed with the magnitude of the challenge. Yeah. From that aspect, if I could share something with brother priests in similar situations that might not be as big or as massive, you don't have to think you have to do it all. Mm. I think it's a true tool of the devil 
to convince pastors, you know, another way of planting doubt. Oh, how are you going to keep track of all this stuff? Mm. You know, something's going to get lost. Something's going to fail and surround yourself with good people. Mm -hmm. So your original question was, how do I approach it? I have to stay true to the most important mission that I'm called as pastor. And that is to help people become disciples. Amen. So to surround myself with good people, I have to first focus and stay focused always on forming disciples because that's who I need to surround myself with. That's what Jesus, Jesus formed disciples. He formed his apostles. Mm -hmm. And I don't know who says it, but it's Craig Martin or, or someone I've heard it repeated. You know, Jesus essentially went camping for three years, very intentional with his apostles. And, you know, he poured life into them. Yeah. Well, I need to stay true to that most important mission of our church. Like, that's how we became a billion Catholics is because we discipled people. Yeah. And they did it really well in the apostolic church. And we have to relearn how to do that in the church today. Yeah. That's how I can't, I don't allow myself to get overwhelmed by all the, the busyness because I know there are people that can help accomplish all that, but I have to stay true to forming disciples. That's huge though. Like what you're saying is very counterintuitive. So when you get handed all these checkbooks and keys and payroll dates and, you know, facility to-do lists, except, yeah, all, all there's like, it's like, father, how do you handle that? He's like, well, I, I make disciples. <laughs> I, I focus on making disciples. And then I begin to, I'm assuming like, oh, I find people who they know how to do the facility thing. They know how to do the payroll thing. And I put them in positions where they could use those gifts and that professional background to serve the church. But I stay focused on making disciples. Yeah. And God has been very much at work. I'll share a couple of, you know, in my life, God moments, I call them. But knowing the changes that are coming this July, yeah, leaning on my leadership team, we pray and meet weekly, but we're probably communicating daily. Mm. I knew that we had to add some staffing. Mm -hmm. But I also, in my heart, I wanted staff that were disciples. Like they knew the most important work we do is the mission. Right. Regardless of role, I'm assuming. Right. Yeah. I have that. I'm blessed to have that in the staff that I already had in place. So as I just started praying, we started going through the process of, of trying to find individuals that would fulfill, for example, I knew with 12 campuses, plus some of the parishes own farmland. Mm, mm hmm and they have farm acreages. And so there's leases. I was like, I wasn't ordained to be a landlord. I mean, that's a huge operation. We need a facilities and, and grounds person. That's their focus. Yeah. And I go, I understand there's going to be sort of ups and downs. But if they're on mission, when there's maybe not a lot going on with facilities and grounds, they're evangelizing. They're on mission. Yeah. So it's a full-time job, no matter what. And... Again, we let the Holy Spirit work through a, a parishioner who has been on fire and leading a small group and, and being very involved in the parish. Just in a, a conversation, he mentioned how one of his childhood friends since kindergarten, he and his wife were looking at moving back this way. Mm. He goes, so Father, if you're aware of any places they'd like to rent before they build and, and so forth, and know of any jobs, I said, well, what does he do? He goes, well, he was a focus missionary, and I'm like, ooh, 
who knows? <laughs> Evangelization. But since being married, his wife was also a missionary, but with Life Team. His wife is now an RN, and he works in maintenance and landscape and facilities at the Nebraska Med Center. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. And I'm like, okay. I go, could you give him my cell number? Just have him reach out, you know, just have a conversation. Well, over the last uh, couple of months, we've had conversations, and June 5th, he's going to start full-time, you know, as director of our facilities and grounds for the whole new family that starts in July. Mm-hmm. But he's a missionary. He gets that's our most important work. Yeah. So God, you know, has brought individuals like that and filling the needs that we have now and, and we'll have even more of in July. But again, it's staying true to the mission first. Right. And trusting the Holy Spirit's work because I, I firsthand see how God provides. Right. I mean, I just want to highlight, because it's it's true of my experience in a much smaller way. I mean, I've never carried that level of, you know, facility and administrative responsibility that you have. But to kind of like in faith, to counterintuitively say, my faithfulness to that responsibility actually requires me to stubbornly and persistently keep what is uniquely my personal responsibility to equip the saints for mission, to make disciples. If I can do that, then God very faithfully provides those other kind of co-laborers, people can come alongside me. So I'm still fulfilling my responsibility, but I'm able to do that through others who are better suited to it because of their professional background and experiences. It's really counterintuitive, and I think it's it's sometimes hard for us who, you know, as leaders who are naturally built. We want to take responsibility. We want to be faithful and do that. And that there's a little trick to faithfulness. It's like, well, what has the Lord uniquely called me personally to do? And as I remain faithful to that, he will enable me to remain faithful to the other things that I may not be able to do personally. He's going to provide the helpers I need. Right. Yeah. I love the way you talk about that. Through Amazing Parish, Patrick Lencioni is who I first heard from, is as pastors, he calls us the CRO chief reminding officer like we have to keep reminding people what's most important and in our mission you know yeah what jesus gave to his apostles we're gonna be hearing in in mark's gospel on uh, ascension we heard it on saint mark's feast day a few weeks ago you know jesus at the end of mark's gospel in chapter 16 gives the mark's version of the great commission but he says all who believe will be baptized and all who are baptized will have the accompanying signs and he goes through you know they'll lay hands on the sick and they'll be healed and you know drink any deadly thing and they won't be harmed and pick up deadly serpents and now i'm not telling people to go drink radiator fluid and, and go pick up a rattlesnake <laughs> yeah thanks for that clarification but do we really understand the power of our baptism? Like how God has created us already yeah, as a new creation, clothed in Christ. You know, everything we talk about from baptism. But do we really believe that? Like we'd let that permeate every fiber of our body and, and it motivates how we're living because those words are really powerful. When we do that, it's very easy to think, let me put it in this context, the early church grew rapidly. Yeah. In times that that were just a little challenging. I mean, you know, no facilities, no religious freedom, aggressive persecution, and the churches are growing. 
right? You know, because we hear how soldiers converted, you know, Roman soldiers would become Christian. Yeah. So put it in context. They'd be standing there watching a Christian be martyred and then literally say, I want that. They were not saying, I want martyrdom. But there was something that was so amazing that drew them to want to be baptized and become a Christian. And and that amazing thing was they experienced joy coming out of these Christians that were being martyred, persecuted. They oozed joy. Now, I want that same joy. Jesus has promised us that, huh? I pray that my joy may be in you so your joy may be complete. And he doesn't put any type of conditions on that. Like, oh, only if you're a priest will my joy be in you, or only if you're retired. Or I mean, there's no conditions. Yeah. He wants his joy to be in us and our joy to be complete. So the church in the early apostolic you know, time grew leaps and bounds. But there was a, a joy that oozed from the early church, the people of the early church, and it attracted and it wanted more. So now I pause and like, okay, do I experience that joy that oozes out of the people today? And in the midst of suffering, right? Like it's joy, but it's it's all the more clearly supernatural because the natural circumstances don't lend themselves to joy, being martyred. No, exactly. So I'm not experiencing that, but I'm not alone in not experiencing that, huh? Mm. Amen. My brother priests and pastors aren't experiencing that. You know, people who work in the church aren't experiencing So going back to my role as a, as a priest, if there's any brother priests that, you know, hear this, I'm like, it is so easy to get duped into thinking we have to do everything because no one else is doing it. Mm-hmm. But in the early church, everyone was doing it. Mm. So let's get back to that. Yeah. So yes, you said a couple times, it may seem counterintuitive or does seem counterintuitive, but if we stay true to the mission, then the needs, whether it's staffing, you know, in mm-hmm. a parish setting, so as a, a pastor, we're not, you know, consumed by all of the, the moving parts, and we don't get distracted and taken away from the most important, our mission. Mm-hmm. But when we form disciples, they also start supporting the church you'll see church giving go up. Yes. You'll see attendance at, at mass go up. Over a year ago, we made a very prayerful, and I did it with the leaders, you know, um, from my leadership team to my pastoral council of, of our Catholic family to the deacons, the staff. We spent a, a day praying and talking through one specific thing which led us to the decision to reduce our masses from eight to four. Wow. We knew it would be met with some resistance, but we stayed true. And we made the decision in January on that retreat day. Mm -hmm. And to show how God works, we did not announce it until we did a series of town hall meetings on a Sunday afternoon at the end of March. And then the change was going to take place in May. And our decision from January to March never leaked. Wow. People were that, they held things in confidence that long. It was held in confidence. We trusted, okay, God, is this what you're desiring for us? Like, 
are you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, leading us to make this change? When we announced it, I said, we figured we'd meet with resistance. I did three town hall meetings that Sunday in March. And were there good questions? Yes. Was there, you know, all upset, anger? No. That's, that's huge. And what's happened since we made that change then over a year ago to four masses in our, our current family of, of seven churches, our masses are full. We had over 2,000 people at our Easter masses. Now, granted, you have family coming home. Yeah. But our normal weekend, we're close to 1,200 people in our four masses. We take a mass count every uh, month on the second uh, weekend of the month. Sidebar, it is important to have good data, accurate data. Yeah, amen. We make better decisions with good data. But anyway, what we've experienced in full churches, now I hear people say, it is so joyful to hear all the voices singing. Yes. It's so joyful to see church full. What happened was people started experiencing joy. You know, yeah, we made a change and not every one of our churches has mass, you know, on, on Sunday or Saturday evening. But our people started experiencing over this past year, like the joy of a full church, the joy of the music and the responses and, and, and then afterwards, you know, the fellowship, we, you know, we really try to be more intentional. Yeah. You know, like Holy Family, uh, Parish in Bow Valley, they now have coffee and donuts on the first Sunday of every month. And people look forward to that time now. You're actually gathering God's people together. It's right. so awesome. It's Acts 2.42. Right. The mission, huh? They paid attention to the teaching of the apostles, mm-hmm. the breaking of the bread, the sacraments, the Eucharist, the fellowship. And the prayers. Yeah. That Acts 242, when I when I say I have to stay true to the mission, you know, that's my guiding principles, Acts 242. Wow. And getting people to live that. But when we do that, God makes even more amazing things happen. So it may seem counterintuitive, but if we stay true to the mission, all the other stuff God takes care of. Yeah. Father, there's oh my gosh, there's so many things I want to ask about. Maybe to start a little bit. Can you talk a little bit about like what did you do to cast vision and to communicate? Because I hear you say we made this massive shift from eight masses down to four masses. Some of the churches weren't getting mass on a weekend. Over several months, you you roll out this change. This is before all the pastoral planning that we're doing. Right. This, yeah, this is before the additional, but like you, you meet with very little resistance, good questions. Yes, you know, sadness and mourning, but like people able to embrace it. The end experience is awesome. I just have to ask the question for all the people, like, what did you say in those town halls? Like, how did you communicate to get people to a place where they were able to receive it and and then come through on the other side with this new joyful experience? I said just a little earlier, data, good data, accurate data is important. Yeah. So in those town hall meetings, yes, I knew the bigger picture of pastoral planning was coming. I didn't know what that would all entail as far as what would the end product be through that. Right. But you knew it had to happen. But in those town hall meetings a year and a half ago, I started with the data from the diocese. Mm. We just have to recognize certain realities. Here's our number of active priests. Mm. And here's the projection of our number of active priests 
in the next few years. Mm-hmm. Here's our pipeline of seminarians. Here's our scheduled, you know, if everything stays true, you know, our number of ordinations. Mm-hmm. But here's the reality of retirements. And then we don't know, throw, you know, unexpected deaths or sickness or or whatever that could happen. Yeah. I go, we have to just honestly recognize these realities mm-hmm. and not knowing what's coming with the bigger picture of pastoral planning. Here's what we can do now, you know, with a change specifically to reduce our masses. But I never showed even talked about the reduction of mass. It was the last slide. Mm-hmm. If I would have led with it, the meetings would have been bloody. Right, right. But I led with, here are the facts. Here's the data. Yeah. And here's what we desire. Yeah, what what did you name as the desire? Because here you gave people the data and, and you waited till the end to say, so I think we need to reduce the mass times a little bit. What was the, the deeper kind of vision and desire that you gave people? Yeah. The desire, I went back to Mark's gospel, that commission, what I shared about, you know, those who believe and are baptized and, and the power of our baptism. But I also went back to the, the early church. I, I went back to, you know, why would people want to become Christian? Why would they want to become baptized when they're seeing Christians literally being persecuted and killed? Mm. You can't help but ask why. And, and the why is there was joy, mm-hmm. as I mentioned, just oozing out. I go, I want that joy, not just for me. I want that joy for every parishioner. I want that joy for everyone. I want people to experience what Jesus has promised, that they praise that his joy is in us and our joy be complete. Yeah. So that that's the desire, huh? Yeah. Now, how that gets accomplished is then the mission, becoming disciples. But my desire is joy, but a joy that, you know, is transformative. And that's how we become saints. It's how we get to heaven. By the grace of God, we let that take us over, you know, and live as God has created us yeah. to be and, and who he wants us to be. Right. And staying true to that mission. Yeah. Because that joy only comes when we really live as disciples. I mean, I have to ask you maybe the obvious question here. How do you make disciples? And I mean, in general, but like, how do you make disciples? Because uh, I mean, if I'm honest, there's a whole lot of people who are starting to use that language, a rediscovery, but it's still kind of rare to see people practically making disciples, right? Helping people who do not have a relationship with Jesus or the church develop that relationship and grow and mature in that relationship. How do you do it? Yeah. There is no program. There's no book. There's no manual. There's the example of of Jesus. And I would say the devil tries to, you know, (laughs) make it complicated and it's not complicated first and foremost. And this may seem counterintuitive, but I'm going to use three words or three sets of words that are the main ingredients for discipling. Mm -hmm. And some might think what I'll say second should be first, um, but it doesn't always happen that way. It can, 
but first is just authentic friendships. And the most important word is authentic. Mm. Because unfortunately, most friendships, most relationships today have an agenda. Yeah. Authentic means there's no agenda. Mm. You just simply want the best for someone. Now, I guess one could say, well, that's an agenda. Mm -hmm. I'm not specifically wanting something from someone. Authentic, as I'm trying to use the word, is like, I just want the best for someone. I want them to get to heaven. So I enter into a friendship with someone authentically because I just care that they become a saint. They get to heaven. Mm-hmm. Now, following that authentic friendship, there's two really key pieces. The first is we need divine intimacy. Mm. So yes, we need an authentic friendship with Jesus. But I say that's maybe not always first because sometimes that develops because of the authentic friendship I have with someone else that leads me to understand and experience divine intimacy with Jesus. Yeah. Well, and if I can reinforce what you just said, I think that's that's what you see happening with the early church. You know, the first thing that the early Christians did wasn't like, hey, centurion, can I teach you how to pray? The first thing they did is they were in relationship. They were witnessing in the ordinary circumstances of their life. There was a hope and a peace and a joy that was clearly otherworldly. And in that context, you know, kindness to the poor, kindness to your enemies, people are like, what? Who are you? Where do you come from? Where where does this power come from? It's like, oh, well, it comes from Jesus. Let me show you how to talk to him. But the learning how to be in relationship prayer came second to that authentic witness. So I think you're on solid ground there. I love the story we hear really early in the Easter season, how Peter and and John go to the temple to pray, you know, at the three o'clock. Mm, mm. And they're going to go through the beautiful gate. And here's the the beggar sitting there because no one could enter the temple area with any money or change in their pocket. So the beggar was there at the beautiful gate, knowing that hey, if they had any change, they'd have to give it to me. Mm. But what did Peter, you know, say? Like, neither gold nor silver do I have, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. Mm-hmm. Well, it might have been, you know, could be considered the fastest authentic friendship in history. But what did what did Peter do? He's like, he just paid attention to him. Yeah. He cared about this guy. And he didn't have, you know, money to give him, change to give him. But look how quickly he introduced him to the divine intimacy, huh? Because the guy went in with him to pray. He was dancing and walking with him. And the people were like, isn't that the beggar? I mean, yeah. But it began with just that very fast, quick friendship, just authentic. Peter cared about him. Yeah, that's awesome. So authentic friendship, the divine intimacy, which we need to have divine intimacy with Jesus. Mm-hmm. That's essential for us in helping people come to understand that and experience that and, and, and grow in that. But then the next part I would say is probably the hardest for most people. But it's what really solidifies authenticity, and that is vulnerability. Hmm. Like with those, you know, that I'm close with, like, man, I need their support and their prayers. And, and you know, if I'm going through whatever, because none of us are perfect, huh? Mm-hmm. And we all have our struggles and our trials. And again, the devil does a great number on us thinking, well, don't let them know because they're just going to 
blab that to others or what well, people are going to really think you're weak or, you know, the, all this doubt, huh? Mm-hmm. But we actually become strong in our vulnerability because vulnerability brings even more trust, especially trusting, as I was talking about at the beginning of our conversation, I have to trust in God. I have to trust in the Holy Spirit at work. But being vulnerable is really hard for people. It's hard for me, Yeah, but it's a necessity. Yeah, it leaves room for others to serve with their gifts when we admit that there is a need and a lack. And, and even more, it lets the Lord come and strengthen us right. uh, directly, you know, pouring right into our hearts and minds, but also providing others as a gift. But if we're pretending we don't have any, oh, I got it all together, we miss the gifts the Lord offers. Yeah. Or we accidentally send the message for, for those who are the gift, uh, you're not needed. Yeah. Man, our time has just flown by. This has been uh, such an encouraging conversation. I just want to maybe give you a moment as we think here. There's a lot of people listening who find themselves in similar circumstances. Certainly across our archdiocese, we made a commitment to do pastoral planning as a whole diocesan community. You know, so in our archdiocese, there's a lot of people who find themselves in similar circumstances. We've got friends in St. Louis and all over the country that are in similar places. What would you say to someone who's listening? They're experiencing some of these challenges. What would you recommend to them as they want to try and find a way through this challenge uh, for their community of faith? Whether they're a priest or whether they're a layperson, where would you suggest they get started? Well, the starting point for everything is prayer. Hmm. Just taking time to be with Jesus and say, okay, Lord, where is it you're wanting me to go? You know, what is it you're desiring? If you're a, a priest, pastor, okay, Lord, what is your desire for the parish that you've called me to serve? Mm. What is it you're wanting me to, to do to best serve your people? Mm-hmm. If you're a parishioner, okay, Lord, what are you desiring from me in my parish? There's something stirring in me and, and I just need your guidance. What is it you're wanting? I mean, mm-hmm. that question, you know, what is Jesus's desire? What is it God's wanting for us um, is not asked enough. Yeah. But that's the starting point because his plan is better than anything we could come up with. Mm-hmm. So starting point has to be just the prayer. Yeah. And then from that, recognize that our biggest battle is always against doubt. Doubt, shame, fear. <laughs> I think in pastoral planning, doubt and fear mm-hmm. yeah. are the two tools that the devil like just fights us hard with. And so we have to recognize the reality that there is a battle. Yeah. You know, there's a, a true battle going on in good and evil. And pastoral planning is a necessary part of this battle. But we have to recognize the tools of, of doubt and fear that the devil employs so we don't get consumed by that. Yeah. And the Lord has not abandoned us in this process. Right. So not succumbing to doubt and, and fear, but recognizing that the devil is at work and in, in that. But then for myself, I have to go back to ultimately Jesus wants us to be happy, Mm -hmm. wants us to experience eternal happiness in heaven. 
but he even wants us to experience happiness here and and now. Mm-hmm. So I ground myself like that is Jesus' desire for me and for everyone. So now how can I, you know, Jesus' desire, specific desire for me, how can I help others experience that that happiness, that joy mm-hmm. that the world cannot give? Nothing in this world can give that only, you know, true happiness and joy, what God can provide because it's lasting. Yeah. Father, thanks for your witness. It's a beautiful thing that you can approach just the challenges of pastoral planning, which could so easily just be about, you know, facilities and keys and payrolls and, you know, mass times. Thank you for making it a place of hope and trust and even joy. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for being with us. Those of you who are listening, you know somebody who needs to hear this. Maybe they've been part of the pastoral planning process. Uh, maybe they're about to. Maybe they haven't been a part of it, and they're just experiencing the results, and they're confused, and they've that that fear and that doubt. Go ahead and share this out with somebody who you you know needs uh, just a little bit of the joy and encouragement from this conversation. Father, again, thank you. Thanks for being with us. Oh, you're most welcome. It was a, a joy to be with you today. 